That witch! God, that woman knows how to make an entrance. Miss Elizabeth Taylor and Mr. Richard Burton. They drink, they fight, they fornicate. I hate you. You just ended your fourth marriage? Who's counting? Who's in debt? have a doozy of an episode this week but before we get to that i am always joined by the illustrious william bibiani bibs how are you i'm good i'm not sure illustrious means what you think it does i'm (laughs) I'm just a guy who does a lot of podcasts but as always uh it is a treat and it is a pleasure to be here with you talking about movies that talk about the people who make movies and often very badly Yes, and we've talked about some films uh, on this podcast in its very short life, but we went from Wired to, we went from the lows of Wired to the highs of LA Confidential back to, is this low or just middling? This is pretty low, but I have seen worse. (laughs) That's not a compliment to anyone who made this particular film, but... For someone to say I've seen worse when they've seen as many movies as we have maybe isn't the most wonderful compliment we can give. Yes, because we are talking about the 2012 Lifetime. Yes, we're going back to the world of Lifetime, but it's a far cry from the Lifetime movie we talked about last time. We're talking about 2012's Liz and Dick. The infamous Lindsay Lohan plays Elizabeth Taylor biopic. I was gonna be mean and initially suggest that we compare and contrast this with the Dominic West, Helena Bonham Carter BBC version that came out after this, which the name escapes me of what that movie is called. And Dick and Liz. Dick and Liz. God, of course, because why come up with something original? No, <laughs> that's not what it is. <laughs> You had me going for a second. You know what? I was like, that makes sense. That makes sense that it would just be called Dick and Liz. But I initially thought, why don't we just compare that? Neophyte, actor, and infamous child star versus seasoned pros. Oh, my God. You know what it was actually called? Burton and Taylor. So I was pretty close, actually. Dick and Liz. It was Dick and Liz. I thought it had some like nondescript snooty pretentious title. I don't know why I thought it would have been called something other than the most obvious title that hadn't already been taken yet. But here we are. Maybe we'll get to Burton and Taylor sometime. Maybe we'll get to the Cheryl Lynn Fenn version of the Liz Taylor story one day. But we're starting out with Liz and Dick, which is a choice. This is a movie directed by Lloyd Kramer, who has not done a whole lot. He's been working since the early 90s, but he did the TV movie of David and Lisa and had predominantly been doing TV movies of either popular fiction 
or salacious stories. So he had done Mary Kay Letourneau, All-American Girl in 2000, and followed that up with the adaptation of Amy and Isabel, and then followed that up with the adaptation of Mitch Albom's The Five People You Meet in Heaven, as well as For One More Day. And then he did this, and his last film is actually a documentary called Midsummer in Newtown about the Sandy Hook tragedy. So he is definitely a director of things. It's interesting how many people think about filmmaking as this incredibly glamorous profession when you realize that the majority of the people who make movies are making stuff that don't get a lot of press and don't get a lot of buzz. And the, these kinds of TV movies, these sort of try to glom onto whatever is popular, whatever's made a lot of headlines, biopics that can be whipped out for a reasonably affordable sum. The industry partly runs on stuff like that. So although he's not a famous director, he's a hardworking director, very, very clearly. He has worked very consistently. People apparently have enjoyed working with him. Kudos to him. I am more interested, however, in the writer of this film, because the writer of this film is Christopher Monger. And Christopher Monger, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, maybe it's Monger, but Christopher Monger is uh, best known for writing the Claire Danes movie Temple Grandin. But more importantly, he wrote and directed a movie with one of the greatest movie titles in the history of cinema. I assume you know what I'm talking about. The Englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain. <laughs> Whenever there's like a Twitter hashtag war or something like that and people are always like, put goat into a movie. The first thing I always do is put it into the Englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain. So the Englishman who went up a goat, but came down a mountain. Instantly better. One of the great <laughs> movie titles. The movie itself, by the way, is very, very cute. It stars Hugh Grant. It's basically a remake of Local Hero, but it is very, very good. Not very, very good. Good, good. But in any case, he's, he's got talent, and I like his work. I'm a little baffled by this screenplay, because on one hand, it hits a lot of conventional TV movie biopic beats. There's nothing terribly wrong with that. And then it's got a framing device I don't understand at all. I always find it interesting to look at the people that end up making these movies. There's a couple biopics where I'm just kind of like, what were you thinking, classically trained screenwriter? You know, I, I think I had the same questions when I watched the Nicole Kidman Race Kelly movie. You know, that's another one that has some good talent and backing behind it, and then they just really drop the ball. This is a film that takes one of the most well-written women, next to Marilyn Monroe, and seems completely disinterested in her. I'm going to be comparing this a lot to The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe, which came out, I think, about three years later. If you look at how Lifetime promoted that, and the, the talent behind that film, versus how they promoted this, and the talent behind this film, it's insane. It's two different lifetime strategies. And I'm assuming everybody got fired after this because I don't understand <laughs> how that worked out. I actually watched the trailer to this before we recorded, and it was incredibly hard to find for starters. And I remember the trailer very well because it was everywhere in 2012. This was the Thanksgiving weekend movie on Lifetime in 2012. They had a promotional budget. 
that was bigger than the entire production budget. Which tells you where their head was at. And the trailer, quote unquote, is less than a minute. It's all rapid cuts and words with us in red and like infamous, dangerous. And it's Lindsay Lohan and Grant Bowler rolling around half naked. And it's that line from the movie where he's like, they fight, they fornicate, they do all this stuff. Just again, rapid fire wording of paparazzi, diamonds, jewels, sex. One of the most provocative movies Lifetime's ever made. And I'm just sitting there thinking, that is greatest false advertising I've ever seen because none of those words are true. And if you watch the Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe trailer, which we talked about when we did that episode, it's a proper minute and a half trailer with Lana Del Rey's Young and Beautiful and emphasizing the sadness and the seriousness of this story. This is just like a Benny Hill skit with Liz and Dick. And I keep wanting to say, Lowen, it's important to point out that this movie relied heavily on Lindsay Lohan's infamy as much as it did Elizabeth Taylor. I think it's fair to say that this movie is, although I think it's pretty clear that Lindsay Lohan wanted this to be a transitional shift for her career, this movie is really nothing more than a rather pronounced chapter in Hollywood's rather grotesque exploitation of Lindsay Lohan and her life. We'll talk about the plot real quick because I don't want to get too in the weeds with deconstructing a movie. People are like, I don't know what the movie is, which you should, because it's pretty obvious. It's Liz and Dick. It's the story of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton's relationship, starting when they met during Cleopatra and going through until Richard Burton's last day of life. It actually starts with him dying, for all we know, and this movie being told in his mind as him and Elizabeth Taylor talk against a black screen. Okay, you need to explain this black screen to me because I understand how movies are told. I've watched a few. I understand telling a biopic from beginning to end. I understand telling a biopic from a flashback structure. I would even understand if they wanted to tell the story because... One thing that the movie explains, which I actually didn't know, is that Richard Burton wrote extensively to Elizabeth Taylor throughout his entire life, even when they were like together. He wrote to her constantly. I recommend if you want to read more about that, read the book Furious Love. It's okay. fantastic, and it, it includes a lot of Richard Burton's letters, some of which were incredibly dirty. <laughs> a lot of fun, and it really does show the depth of their love and commitment for each other. See, I think that's really excellent. And I would actually have been fascinated what I thought. I saw this when it came out. I mostly had forgotten it. I rewatched it again for this, obviously. But when I was watching it this first time, I was like, oh, are they telling the story from the perspective of Burton's letters, which are deeply personal and probably reveal a lot about him? That's an interesting framework on which to hang their story. Obviously, it's told from Richard Burton's perspective, but he was obviously deeply in love with Elizabeth Taylor. He's not going to look at her too fawningly because their relationship was very contentious as well. That could be really, really great. And instead, no. Instead, we cut to a black room, just like a black box theater, you know, any cheap local theater, with two director's chairs, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton just sitting next to each other when they're young talking about their life as if it has been entirely lived. Is this them in heaven? Are they in front of St. Peter trying to explain, listen, I know the Pope denounced our relationship, but we're trying to 
get in here. We don't think we were that evil. I mean, yeah, he was a, a raging alcoholic, but what was I? There are some scenes where you actually see them watching a scene from the movie where they'll cut back to them and they'll be like, oh, oh yeah, that's exactly how it happened. I'm like, are they watching a movie of their lives? Yeah, I understand having a framing device. I'm not against having a framing device. It can hold the movie back sometimes, but it's not the end of the world. I literally don't understand where they are, when they are, why they are. I literally don't get it. They do not explain it. The whole framing device behind the movie Wired, it's a fucking insult, okay? It is a fucking insult to have poor John Belushi's corpse get up from a gurney and have an angel tell him he screwed up his whole life while he relives his entire life in a wacky Saturday Night Live (laughs) version of the afterlife. It's just cruel to his memory to belittle his death like that. But at least I knew what was happening. Right. There is a reason for the A to B to C momentum of the narrative. You know, you get why he has to go from the gurney to ending up in his hotel room. I don't know, talking to the author of the book, the the guy that wrote his biography, that doesn't make sense. But you understand how we get there. This is a movie that it has the framing device, but then it also does captioning. It'll say Sardinia, Portofino, Italy, 12 years later, six weeks later, three weeks later. And I'm just like, I don't understand. We're jumping from a lot of different times, a lot of different locations. The movie feels like it's supposed to span decades, and it almost comes off like it's maybe about uh, three weeks. Well, it doesn't help that Lindsay Lohan doesn't really do much in the way of age makeup. I have the same problem with The Shawshank Redemption. Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman don't really age in that movie either. It doesn't sell the span of time. That's a common movie movie-making failure that most of us are willing to overlook. And indeed, if that was the only problem with the movie, we'd all be saying this movie is a classic. I almost wonder if this black box framing device might have been an acting exercise that they recorded. Like, hey, listen, we want to make sure that you're comfortable with the characters, you understand their whole life story. So let's do some improv exercises where you're, you're Liz and Dick and you're being interviewed about your life and let's just speak off the cuff, talk about how you feel to each other, be a great way to get in character. And honestly, it might actually really be a good way to get in character. And maybe they just put it in the movie because they thought it was neat. I would love to get an explanation for, was this an afterthought because the movie wasn't told very well and you needed to do some reshoots in order to connect different storylines and different timelines or what where did this come from it's weird i feel it's there purely to pad the story because let's be real this movie is not 90 minutes it's an hour and 28 minutes with no credits i watched this courtesy of imdb tv with ads with the ads it probably corked it up to about an hour and what 40 maybe but if you didn't have those moments where you would cut back to them talking about themselves, this movie would be a 40-minute short film. It's literally there to pad, and you don't need to pad the Liz and Dick story. There is plenty there that you could have pulled from. You could have done an entire movie that was just them in their hotel room in Italy fighting and fucking. That would be an amazing play. And it would win a bunch of Tony Awards. It would be great. 
you could have done literally just the filming of Cleopatra, which they treat as it was just a couple of days in Italy. And like, like no, and, <laughs> no, Cleopatra bankrupted 20th Century Fox. I mean, it destroyed them. It came to represent everything that was garish and over the top and out of date about old Hollywood and the studio system. It destroyed everything. Unrelated to its box office, which of course is the most popular narrative, I would like to say that I actually quite like the movie Cleopatra. Cleopatra is a lot of fun. Yeah. I've seen it on the big screen all almost four hours of it. Ooh, I'm jealous. It was when they re-released it to Blu-ray, I think. They screened it. I did it. I sat and I watched all of it. And it is a lot of fun if you go in knowing that it is extremely representative of what old Hollywood biblical narratives were all about. Everybody's either English or American. Everything is sexy and overblown. Right. You could have done just the creation of Cleopatra, which took almost, what, a year? Give or take, yeah. That's really the thing that this movie loses the sense of, and you need that. You need, you don't have Burton and Taylor without Cleopatra, but this movie treats it as they just met, they didn't like each other initially, and then he stared at her boobs and then vaguely assaulted while they were filming a scene, and they fell in love. Can we talk about that intro scene, by the way? Because it's really weird. So here's how they meet. The movie, again, it's less than 90 minutes. There's not a lot of fat on it, so they just move right along. Scene two, boom, where they're meeting. And they meet on the set of Cleopatra. Two things I notice about that scene. One, apparently Cleopatra was a very cheap production because they're mostly getting by with use of scarves and veils and fake podiums. I understand that your lifetime. I also understand that this is the part to spend money on. For the love of God, this is the only part. Two, they make it seem like Richard Burton was a day player. He just came in that day, nobody knew who he was, the director didn't know to talk to him, and then they introduce him to Elizabeth Taylor seconds before they're supposed to act together. That is not the way that happened. They were doing publicity, Burton was well known. This is absurd. Just absurd. It is, and you need that time because the movie took so long to film that there was a lot of downtime, several months of downtime, Actors went back home to L.A. and then they would come back. This wasn't just this clandestine affair that started out of boredom or just on the quick. This really developed into a relationship because they spent so much time together. Because they had to be close to the set and Fox was losing money. The production was always in trouble. Taylor was always sick. So there was a lot, a lot, enough to fill a 90-minute movie of just what was happening on this set. And speaking as a movie geek, I'm really disappointed that they didn't even try to put Rex Harrison in it for a second. Not even just Rex Harrison rolling his eyes like, here we go. That would have been fine. I just wanted him there. We get a very basic Joseph Mankiewicz, which is about it. This is true. We do. They don't really go through a lot of effort to explain who he is or why he's one of the most important filmmakers of his generation. No, nothing like that. I want to talk a little bit, actually, before we move on too much further, because... Obviously, I think we're going to talk a lot more about Lindsay Lohan and where she came from. But a real quick aside, because Grant Bowler gets completely overlooked. Grant Bowler is a New Zealand actor. He's been working in the industry for many, many years. You go back, you can watch him in little bit roles on Farscape and things. And He's got the Burton voice down. 
I'm going to give him credit for that. Yes. He doesn't look yes. a lot like Richard Burton. He's passable for a TV movie, and he's got the voice. He would have been a better Rex Harrison. He would have been a great Rex Harrison. Oh, my God. I kept looking at him like, you're born to play Rex Harrison. Sexy Rex. Yeah. Good, sir. Yeah. It's ironic and that he ended up playing Richard Burton, but he's not bad in that. I would say he is the best part of this movie because he seems to know what he's doing. And we can talk about it when we talk about Lindsay in a second. This movie doesn't really seem interested in Elizabeth Taylor. It's really the Richard Burton story because it starts with Richard Burton, the framing devices around him dying, and the only real character arc and transformation and sense of anguish that we get is through his character, whether that's his crumbling marriage to his first wife, Sybil, and how their children are reacting to this relationship, whether that's his, his relationship with his brother, E4, which was also very contentious when he started dating Elizabeth Taylor, and his struggles of not being recognized by the Academy, and whether he's a stage actor or a movie star. You know all of that in 90 minutes, and yet if you don't know anything about Elizabeth Taylor, you're sure as hell not going to know anything about her, who she is as a person, how she feels. The only thing you know how she feels is horny, and that she really, really loves Richard Burton. That's it. And she loves publicity. They do talk about that. But yeah, and, I think yes. about that sometimes, where there are people who are going to be watching a movie like Liz and Dick. And they're probably going to be watching it in the same room as their parents, or maybe they're literally only watching it because Lindsay Lohan is in it. They're probably young, and they probably don't know a lot about Elizabeth Taylor or Richard Burton, especially Richard Burton, whose career is a little bit more obscure nowadays to younger audiences. I think that's fair to say. I think you'd get some sympathy for Richard Burton out of this film, but I think you're right. Only thing they care about Elizabeth Taylor is how much of a diva she was, about how every time Richard Burton was doing a movie and she got jealous of the co-star, she would say, no, I'll star in it. They can't afford you. I'll take a pay cut. They'll hire me. I'm Elizabeth Taylor. She's and she's very, right. She's a very petulant yeah. child-like character. Which is why they felt so comfortable casting Lindsay Lohan, because by this point in her career, this is the early 2010s, she is known for being difficult. She is known for being a diva. And whether or not those categorizations or those labels are fair or merely Hollywood just being cruel to women, which they'll do constantly, they did it to Elizabeth Taylor, Lifetime is clearly exploiting that because they're basically just saying, Lindsay Lohan is Elizabeth Taylor. And how can we prove this? Grant Bowler is doing a voice. Lindsay Lohan is not. Lindsay Lohan is playing Elizabeth Taylor like Lindsay Lohan if her hair was black. That's it. Lindsay Lohan can be a good actor. And this was a time when she was trying rather desperately to expand her acting repertoire. It was only one year after this that she was in that really, really bad Paul Schrader movie written by Brett Easton Ellis called The Canyons, which is basically her and porn star James Dean, not the actual James Dean, the porn star version. And they're basically just lonely and mean and they live in the valley and they have awkward sex. So full disclosure, I love The Canyons. And oh. I, you're totally right. We could do a whole episode, I think, on child stars and especially being a young woman in this industry i just did an episode of a different podcast about Haley mills and the struggles that Haley mills had trying to be a serious actress after being a disney darling for so long and i feel like Lindsay lowen 
trod similar territory, but she came of age, unfortunately, during the TMZ era of what she's doing with her life. This was definitely a bleak point for her in her career. You know, she had done Georgia Rule in, in 2007, which notoriously had a lot of onset problems with the producers and director actually publishing a letter saying that she was unprofessional and she was a big pain to work with. And then after that, it was just this downhill slide of subpar features coupled with a lot of public issues involving court lawsuits and lawyers and whether she was going to do jail time. I mean, you could not be a person who knew entertainment from between what, 2007 to about 2013 and not know what Lindsay Lohan was up to. And it's really sad when you think about it. She's done some guest spots on TV, but in the last seven years, she's only appeared in one movie and nobody even knows about it. I was looking at her filmography and I was kind of shocked to see that there was stuff within the last two or three years because I'm like, I've never heard of any of these things. I was a huge fan. I was the only one in the theater seeing I Know Who Killed Me in 2007. I will stand up for that movie. I that like that movie a lot. Fun. That, that movie is fun, fun and kooky. People, if you look at I Know Who Killed Me as a drama, as a Hollywood thriller, as a serial killer movie, as a slasher, as anything conventional, you're going to come away saying this is the worst thing ever. But if you realize it's an Italian giallo, it's brilliant. It totally fits into that mold. It's not even that weird. It's really stylish. She gives an interesting performance. That movie got a really bum rap. I'm telling you, man, that movie is way overdue to get critically reevaluated. You gotta watch it as a psychological thriller where nothing is true. Especially if you've seen the alternate ending, which should be the real ending of the movie, where it really does play as like it's a psychological dream within a dream type of thing. It's a lot of fun. And I think that's where, unfortunately, Lindsay Lohan, I don't want to compare her to Tara Reid, the actress Tara Reid. Now I need to like emphasize that. There is that similarity. But I will say here, as Elizabeth Taylor, and we talked about it when we talked about the Audrey Hepburn story with Jennifer Love Hewitt. Lindsay Lohan really does love Elizabeth Taylor. And I remember when she was promoting this, talking about how she identified with her. Obviously, they had very similar upbringings as child stars in the industry and being sexualized and all of that. But she really did do her homework as much as she could. It's unfortunate that a lot of the filming of this movie, which, mind you, took 20 days. They filmed this like a cobbled together production to the point that SAG-AFTRA had to investigate because the union was saying that they were actually running the actors ragged because both Lindsay Lohan and two other performers had to be hospitalized for exhaustion and dehydration because of how hard the filming was to get done in 20 days. We talk about, oh, Lindsay Lohan has got this reputation for being difficult. She's working her ass off. She's getting hospitalized for exhaustion. She was in a car accident during this production. She ran her car into like a truck. There was a fender bender on a highway. And she went to the set and she finished the day. Good for her. It's really crazy, these horrible standards by which we expect actors to punish themselves just to be in, in this case, a lifetime original movie. That doesn't mean they're all bad, but there isn't necessarily a lot of, grandeur applied to a Lifetime original movie, you know? It's frustrating because if you read interviews with the cast and crew other than Lindsay Lohan, Grant Bowler was incredibly respectful of her and said that she worked very hard, she had this huge level of commitment. At the upfronts, when they promoted this movie, 
the director of the feature, Lloyd Kramer, actually said that he was excited to cast her, but he was incredibly worried about her level of commitment. Really? Excuse me, that was the producer, Larry Thompson, who also produced this. So already we're doubting her. From the minute you cast her, you're casting her more for infamy. This was a film that presumably, I don't know how far in the casting that they had got, but allegedly Megan Fox, Olivia Wilde, and Kate Beckinsale were also considered for the role, and supposedly it had come down to Lindsay Lohan and Megan Fox. Ironically, both of them had been in Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen together. If it comes down to both of them, and I'm saying this in the nicest way possible, you're not casting for talent or looks at that point. You're casting for infamy. Because also, remember, Megan Fox was also incredibly popular in 2012, mostly for Transformers and being Michael Bay's piece of ass. She suffered a lot of exploitation in her own right making those movies. We should clarify, based on what you just said, we're not yes. implying that Michael Bay a... and Megan Fox were in a relationship, but no. she was her objectification, specifically by Michael Bay. Yeah, yeah, that was like her job for America for yeah. five years was yes. just to be extremely hot in Transformers movies. A job, she, a job she threw herself into, but every single time she has had an opportunity to actually act and get a real role, not in a Teenage Ninja Turtles movie, but in something like This Is 40, which had a small supporting role, but she's very, very good in it. Jennifer's Body. Wonderful in Jennifer's Body. She's, She's great. That movie's great. She has a lot of talent. I don't doubt for a second that she would have been, at least for Lifetime original movie quality, a pretty good Elizabeth Taylor. When I think about that crop of people that they were considering, the person who I think probably could have been absolutely phenomenal is Kate Beckinsale. Because she looks yeah. the part pretty good, and she's also an extremely underrated actor. Right. I wonder how much of it had to do with the fact that she had played Ava Gardner in The Aviator. Do you think people would have been confused? Or do you think that maybe she was just less interested? I'm wondering how much of their decision was, well, we'll just get her. She's already played famous woman of the 40s. She can do it again. Although Ava Gardner is a far different personage than Elizabeth Taylor. And I've softened on Kate Beckinsale playing Ava Gardner since I've seen The Aviator. I don't love it. But it's more so because that movie gives her nothing to do than having the fact that she passively looks like Ava Gardner and she doesn't have the accent, but whatever. That's Kate Blanchett's movie. It's her and Leonardo DiCaprio and everyone comes in, whether they look exactly like the person they're supposed to be or look (laughs) literally nothing like them whatsoever, like Leonardo DiCaprio. It doesn't really matter. That's a twofer and everyone else is basically doing a glorified camp. I do Um, like that movie a lot, though. I do. I love The Aviator. But to Lindsay Lohan's credit, much like we said about Audrey Hepburn and Jennifer Love Hewitt, she has a passion for this woman. And you can see that. It's not like watching Kelly Garner inhabit Marilyn Monroe in certain scenes. And I know that the makeup woman for this movie is quoted as saying, you know, in some scenes, she looks so much like Elizabeth Taylor. It just was shocking to me. I don't ever see Elizabeth Taylor, I always see Lindsay Lohan. I never was like, ooh, did they get her? Did they resurrect her and put her in the film? No, never, no. This is like watching The Haunting of Sharon Tate and trying really hard to be like, does Hillary Duff maybe look like, no, no, it's not going to happen. It's I am vetoing The Haunting of Sharon Tate. We are not doing that on this podcast. I watched it once. I reviewed it for the rap. It was the worst movie of last year, and that's saying something. No, no, I 
vetoed. That movie is terrible. No. Maybe no, if we that make broke a lot me. of money on Patreon one day, one day. If you put that as a goal, if you get a certain number of subscribers, I'll make you a deal. We will not only do The Haunting of Sharon Tate, we will do all of those awful The Haunting of Nicole Brown Simpson, all those horrible ones. We'll do the absolute most offensive, awful ones ever. But we got to agree on a goal, and it's got to be reasonably high. We'll talk about this off-air. The hair and makeup budget is great on this movie. They definitely do something with capturing all of Liz Taylor's looks, whether that's the long Cleopatra wigs or in the 60s when she's wearing the nude lips and the cat's eyes and the caftans. I did have an issue with the fat shaming in this movie. Elizabeth Taylor, she did yo-yo in her weight every now and then, but it's even more of a problem when Grant Bowler's Richard Burton is talking about her pudgy fingers or calling her fat and she's Lindsay Lohan. So she's skinny. They never do the work to make it actually appear as though that is even a reasonable assessment of... Even in the scenes where they're recreating Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which again, if you've seen that movie, Elizabeth Taylor put on some weight and padded herself to look like this dumpy housefrau. They recreate the scenes and Lindsay Lohan is size two. Whoa, 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 size two. That's two whole sizes. <laughs> That's double. Okay, so she's a size zero still. You're like, come on, really? Maybe make an attempt. But something that Elizabeth Taylor did struggle with was her weight and her appearance. And it's hard to really feel for the character when Lindsay Lohan comes out looking glamorous with her boobs hanging out. She's beautiful. She's beautiful. I would- I would be fascinated to know the rationale for why that didn't happen. And obviously, it's not cast away. They didn't have time to take time off production, let her gain weight healthfully, let her lose it healthfully. That was never going to happen. Also, Elizabeth Taylor isn't necessarily known for wearing puffy blouses or anything where you could hide that kind of physical transformation. So I get that there were some logistical issues that I'm sure they had to deal with. However, there was stuff they could have done. And I am curious if the reason why they didn't do that was they didn't want to make Lindsay Lohan look bad. She's in the same situation as Elizabeth Taylor. Her looks are under constant scrutiny from the media. It's fucked up. And it might have been an issue that they just didn't want to put her in the exact same situation Elizabeth Taylor was. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was in her contracts. Maybe they thought, well, we don't want to hide Lindsay Lohan behind an enormous physical transformation. Not that it's enormous. Elizabeth Taylor was never, yeah, when she got older, she worried too much about it. But morbidly obese. We're not talking Marlon Brando here. We're talking me. Like, listen, I'm fat. I will freely admit that. Okay? Elizabeth Taylor at her worst looks better than I do now. And, like, that's fine. I don't believe in fat shaming. I don't believe it's fair, but it is an actual thing that celebrities have to deal with constantly. Sometimes, let's be perfectly honest about this, the fat shaming that goes on in the media is nonsense. There's a scene in this movie, actually, where she talks about how... There's actually a joke I actually like, which is where they don't know what the paparazzi is yet because it's still a new phenomenon. It's like, you know, Fellini coined the term, and the producer of Cleopatra's like, I don't care just stop it it's terrible but she talks about how there used to be an understanding they didn't publish the pictures that made celebrities look bad 
It was a mutual understanding. We'll look good in these pictures. You'll still talk about tabloid trash, but at the very least, you weren't coming after us on this incredibly superficial level, which could seriously damage our careers beyond mild or typical scandal. So she talks about that and how hurt she is that there's headlines like Cleo Factra, which I don't know if that one's real, but it wouldn't shock me. I get that. There's a lot of pain there, but it also often comes from nothing. It comes from bad camera angles. It comes from extremely unreasonable expectations about a woman's weight. That could have been discussed as well. If you wanted to write it off as, oh, they're actually just making a mountain out of a molehill, you could have done that too. They refuse to really commit. It's a short production. It's a cheap production. They're not really going full bore into anything. No, it ends up leaving a lot of the infamy and the scandal on the cutting room floor. Outside of that, the only thing that's maybe touched on with any hint of weight is Richard Burton's marriage and what that's going to look like in terms of his wife talks about how she he's always wandered, but they've stayed together. He has children. Elizabeth Taylor also had children, but nobody cared about them, apparently. None of the kids show up in the movie, by the way. None of her children. We do get a glimpse at Richard Burton's daughter, Kate Burton, who also became a successful actress in her own right. But that's really the only reference to his kids is his daughter, Kate. We do see that they have five children at some point, and you're like, where did these kids come from? I don't really know, but okay. I have an idea of where they came from. I know where they came from. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> I was just like, this kid looks 15 years old. Did, did they? I mean, I know what, whose kids they are, but if you don't know, you're going to be like, wait, were they churning out children at a certain point? What is this timeline? But at the same time, I was really upset by the fact they just kind of cast off the fact that Elizabeth Taylor was married to Eddie Fisher at the time and the scandal that that caused because she had taken him, quote unquote, from America's Sweetheart, which was Debbie Reynolds. That's a huge scandal. And they treat it with one scene where they're sitting in the black room or whatever, reminiscing. And she's like, oh, he took advantage of the fact that I was mourning after Mike Todd. He pursued me and that was really it. She looks like this callous, petulant woman, especially in the scenes where Sybil Burton tries to kill herself. I'm going to describe it exactly as it is presented to the audience. She has tried to kill herself. Richard Burton goes back to the hotel room and tells Elizabeth Taylor, my wife tried to kill herself. I have to stop seeing you. And she's like, fine, I'm going to remove myself from the equation and takes a bunch of pills and then proceeds to try to kill herself immediately after his wife has tried to kill herself. So he has two possibly OD women on his hands. He picks her body up and leaves the room. Cut to nothing in between. Cut to the scene of him taking Elizabeth Taylor, whacked out on pills, to the hospital. Did he walk? How far was the hospital? <laughs> this way? Carting her body? That sucks. Second of all, we never hear about his wife's suicide. Like, he doesn't even have a moment to be like, two women tried to kill themselves tonight. Oh my God. There's a reason we tell stories about these people because their lives were big. These are huge, epic lives. And when you get people who are told they're the most important and beautiful and talented people in the world for so long that they can't help but, you know, absorb some of that. 
And to the extent they're, oh no, my relationship isn't going well. I'm going to do something really big and dramatic because that's all I know. I'm a big and dramatic person. I do drama for a living. There's something about that can veer so quickly into camp if you are not exceptionally careful with it and you are not incredibly tender and understanding, conveying to the audience the actual humanity that goes into these seemingly over-the-top decisions. I don't think this movie is the worst example of it. It's certainly not the campiest movie we've covered or that I've ever seen, but by giving the short shrift to these giant moments, it runs into just feeling like, at best, a highlight reel, and at worst, just a shallow representation of events that obviously deserved more than that. You're right. Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds are their own movie. A big movie. I would love to see that movie where Elizabeth Taylor is the other woman. That's an amazing movie. Please show me that movie. Have they made that movie? I don't believe so. And I mean, there's something to be said about showing that as this relationship of Elizabeth Taylor being the woman that assumes she can have whatever she wants. We certainly see that in certain scenes where she wants more sex from Richard Burton. He, he talks about, oh, more is her favorite word. And there's certainly something to be said about the fact that as much as she was good friends with Debbie Reynolds, to the point that she was her bridesmaid at her wedding to Eddie Fisher. We could talk about how much of her relationship with Eddie Fisher was due to the fact that she was grieving the loss of her husband, she wasn't thinking straight, or the fact that she was a movie star who felt like, hey, Nobody is off limits. There's some depth to that. There is more than just her being this mustache twirling, metaphorically speaking, femme fatale. I really think there's something to be said about that. And here, Eddie Fisher is just this dude that shows up. There's that scene where Richard Burton puts him on the spot and makes Elizabeth Taylor decide who she loves. In public, no less. In public. I don't know if that's a true story or if they just stole that from The Great Gatsby. I believe either way. But that relationship, you don't have any discussion of it. You don't talk about the fact that by that point, she was already in the process of adopting a child with Eddie Fisher, or that she already had a daughter. You know, all of that is just ignored. And the only moments we get of Elizabeth Taylor as the actress that we know she was is when she's in Switzerland with her children. She doesn't have a movie to do. She's taking a break. You're not really sure if that break is self-imposed or because of the studio. Her children are playing and she doesn't understand how to play with them, which I thought that was really offensive because Elizabeth Taylor has been referred to as a doting mother. She did spend a lot of time with her children and she pushes them aside. She's like, I don't understand these games that they play. And she tells her mother, wasted use of Teresa Russell, who also doesn't age in this movie, so it becomes very weird, especially in the final scenes when everybody looks relatively the same age. But she says to her mother that I've been making movies since I was nine years old. I made 29 films at this point in her life. I wanted them to go more with that, about how she has been this product since she was a kid. She doesn't know what to do with herself without that. And it just plays off as this, have to work because I don't know what else to do. I'm not built for anything else. That's one of the things that I find the movie rather insulting to Elizabeth Taylor because... Richard Burton in this movie, we see obviously his intense, passionate love for and attraction to Elizabeth Taylor. We see him struggling with family members who think he's throwing his respectability and his future away and his 
dignity and maybe even its soul because they're not unreligious. We see him struggle with the dignity of the theater versus the financial success and a celebrity of film. He has so much going on in his life. Elizabeth Taylor has Richard Burton, which is absurd because if you were to watch the movie, you would think that for the rest of Elizabeth Taylor's career, she only made movies with Richard Burton. And that's not true. She was working constantly. She was a very respected star who could really pack people into theaters. There's a reason why she was so coveted. There's a reason why she won two Academy Awards. She is, in and of herself, a legitimate Hollywood icon. And the way that Liz and Dick plays her is... She's bored with acting, but she does it because it's her work. And all she really cares about is being overly possessive of Richard Burton. That's and insulting. It is very insulting. There's a moment at the very end where she says, people forget that we made 40 films in that time that we were together, and 11 of which starred them on screen together. Outside of the fact that that line is intentionally confusing, because I was like, they didn't make 40 films together. If you're talking about they made 40 films while they were married, that makes more sense. They did work together and apart the entire time that they were married. This movie plays it as they had these big lulls in their careers. That was not true. You see eventually Richard Burton starring in Bluebeard, and he's already moved on to this other actress, and Elizabeth Taylor doesn't know what to do with herself. There's so much bottle throwing in this movie. And it was directed by Edward Dimitrick, who is, of course, oh, yeah. a slouch. We treat Richard Burton, who has this arc in this movie, as being this tortured performer who didn't get the recognition. And how insulting is it that his wife, who... I don't know, is less talented than him, won two Oscars. That's what I was irritated by, especially that scene where she wins for Virginia Woolf and E4, his brother, says, she just won an Oscar, dude, and you're sulking here in the corner. But the movie doesn't address why he's upset. Is he upset because he feels that his wife is untalented? He says eventually he thinks, I don't deserve her. I still thought that was a weak excuse. It's interesting how they play that out because what happened was they were actually nominated in like two separate years. He never won an Academy Award of Memory Serves in his entire life. Nominated a few times. He was nominated for... The Spy, the Spy Who Came cold. In From the Cold. And he lost. Then it shows them in like a stairwell outside the Oscars and he's depressed. Why? He lost publicly. And she brings it up. I've been here before. It sucks. It's not so much one person winning. It's four people losing publicly on camera. That's why they watch the Oscars. At the same time, it's like, that's easy for you to say you've already won one. And he's right. She's very flip about it. To the extent that when they're both nominated for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I don't know if the decision was this quick, but he immediately says, you were both nominated for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And he's like, I'm not going. Last time I lost and it just hurt my feelings so much, I'm not going. And she's just like, then neither of us are going. Fuck it. We're going to stay home. And they do. Then they hear over the radio that Richard Burton lost. And it's like, oh, sorry, Richard, that sucks. And then they hear over the radio that Elizabeth Taylor won. And I actually do like how Grant Bowler plays that moment. He gets up and he says, congratulations, you were wonderful. I'm a bad loser. I need some time to myself. I actually thought that was actually kind of nicely handled in that moment. Jealousy over her film career is interesting. There's a moment they have when he's doing Hamlet. 
There's a lot of details about that production of the movie gets wrong, by the way, but whatever, it's pretty minor. He's doing Hamlet, and she's talking about, oh, you're the most amazing actor I've ever seen. And he's like, oh, thank you, thank you. It's the stage, it's different from film. And he actually says, I learned a lot about film acting from you, because the stage is more about being presentational, and you know how to be subtle. It's a great moment. There are very small moments in this movie that are really, really capturing something that I wish that they had gone further on. The Oscar thing, and I say it included this line, because there are people who believe that Elizabeth Taylor only won the Oscar for Butterfield 8 because she almost died. They mentioned very briefly that she had to have a tracheotomy, and there are still people today that argue that that Oscar was a sympathy Oscar. I think it would have been really interesting for her to say, the Oscars suck because people get humiliated. People still say, I don't deserve the Oscars that I won. And even with Virginia Woolf, people assume, oh, she just won for playing herself. It's not a performance. It's just her being her. So there is still a lot of critique of Taylor's career, of her being just a personality, not an actress. Much like we see with Lindsay Lohan, that she was not an actress. She's just a personality. She's a celebrity. And there's that distinction there. I just looked it up because I actually wasn't sure who she beat for winning for Butterfield 8. And she was up against Shirley MacLaine in The Apartment. That's some tough competition. Ooh. She was also up against Greer Garson for Sunrise at Campobello, which I haven't seen. She was up against Deborah Carr in The Sundowners and Melina Mercury in Never on Sunday. So I'm pretty sure a big competition was Shirley MacLaine. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of people that still say Clayne got wrong. There are people who still think Marissa Tomei won by accident because Jack Palance just read the last name on the card. Yep. And we know now for a fact that they will run out and say if something screwed up. Thank you, Moonlight. We know that they will correct it. We know that it's fine. Let's be fair about one thing. For whatever reason, whether it's based on talent or celebrity or sympathy or career retrospective, the Oscars are a popularity contest. That's what awards are. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's so much politicking. Who has the best narrative? Well, the Oscars were literally invented in order to keep the talent happy and make them feel like they're doing something artistic and cool back in a studio system when they were basically indentured servants to the studios. It was there to be a pat-pat. They're there. You did good acting. If that wasn't the case, because you know who won the first Academy Award for Best Actor, right? It's, oh God, this is Trivia 101. I should know this, but I don't. I'm going to have you tell me and then I'm going to throw my... Okay, see, here's the thing though. It's not Trivia 101. The first Best Actor winner was Emile Jannings, who won for two films. He won for The Last Command and The Way of All Flesh. And he was up against Richard Bartholomew and Charlie Chaplin. However, none of them got the most votes. You know who got the most votes? Rin Tin Tin. Susan Orlean, the woman who wrote The Orchid Thief, I think she was writing something about Rin Tin Tin, and she discovered that the first Best Actor winner was going to be a dog. They realized that, A, we want this to be taken seriously, and B, this is supposed to be for the actors if we give it to a dog first, let alone at all, a lot of the other actors are going to be offended. So Rin Tin Tin got screwed out of an Oscar because it's a popularity contest. It's frustrating at the end of the day that this movie is as cheap as it is. And then Lifetime would come back three years later 
trying to revamp their image of the Lifetime original movie with The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe. And then they did nothing with that goodwill, and now they, they're doing whatever it is they're doing now. They make more crap. I will say, it's been a long time since I've seen the Sherilyn Fenn version, which was also a Lifetime movie, if memory serves, called The Elizabeth Taylor Story. I don't know if it's called The Elizabeth Taylor Story or The Liz Taylor Story, but it's, it's one of the two. And I remember that taking more of a root of looking at her as a younger performer and her relationship with Montgomery Clift. I think her first marriage with Conrad Hilton. I remember Sherilyn Fenn being entertaining, the it girl of the 90s. You're close. The title was Liz, the Elizabeth Taylor story. There it is. So yes. it's both. It's been a very long time since I've seen it. It does show the Cleopatra filming and, and her relationship with Richard Burton in a very different way. It's a very small scale production, but I want to say it did it better than this. Do not quote me on that. Maybe one day we'll do that movie. Elizabeth Taylor is much like Marilyn. Can't really get somebody that's going to inhabit the person, so you have to get elements of it. And you need to have a good script. You need to have a good director. Like, you can't half-ass this story. You need to have some serious money behind it. I'm shocked that there has not been a big screen iteration of the Elizabeth Taylor story but I think that that has to do a lot more with my continued argument that biopics remain more of a male genre on film than they do on TV. It's really easy to get a, a biopic about a male figure in Hollywood made than a woman. You are not wrong about I, that. I, don't think I, I am. When you think about the biopics that typically break out and make a lot of money or win a lot of awards, they'll have women in them like felicity jones was nominated for best actress for the theory of everything but it was eddie redmayne's film that's generally the case the one thing i think is really interesting is that we're living in this really giant boom of musical biopics where we'll have films like the absolutely repugnant bohemian rhapsody or the really quite excellent rocket man and we have another one coming out of aretha franklin I'm curious if that one will do Bohemian Rhapsody numbers. By all rights, it should. But I also think that, sadly, there are people whose stories get overlooked. 42 should have made a ton of money. That's a very, very good film about Jackie Robinson. It's not amazing, but it's a very satisfying biopic. Get On Up is one of the best biopics of the last decade, and nobody saw it, and that's a damn shame. Even something like I, Tanya, which I also think is one of the best biopics of the last decade, and completely reframes the life of someone who everyone in the audience thought they knew in a way that doesn't change the facts, but dramatically shifts our perspective. And it's really, really brilliant. These movies aren't making Bohemian Rhapsody numbers. It's bullshit. When it comes to Hollywood talking about itself, there's still this emphasis on men. You could say that there's, there's a few more biopics about Black men, which is great, but Black women in the entertainment industry. I'm so shocked. Hattie McDaniel, well, the closest we get is Ryan Murphy's Hollywood with Queen Latifah telling us about Hattie McDaniel. Anna Mae Wong. Not to give Ryan Murphy's Hollywood too much credit, but that's really the first serious look at Anna Mae Wong, one of the first Asian stars. It's frustrating that there's still this emphasis on putting women's stories about Hollywood actresses on television as opposed to giving them the opportunities. Let's be fair. They assume that women are watching Lifetime. 
And that, to be fair, that is probably even like in Lifetime's manifesto as their core demographic. I think they probably openly admit to courting an audience of women. But it's insulting that that's the only place where a lot of these biopics can get made. Here's a prominent one that was nominated for a couple of Academy Awards. My Week with Marilyn. Some random dude is the protagonist. Not even Lawrence Olivier. I would have understood if it was Lawrence Olivier. I actually so love Kenneth Branagh in that movie. It's a dude. It's a random dude. Some dude He's... whose account has been disputed heavily. Right. No proof. And claims that they totally would have gotten down had things been different and she not been crazy. Here is a movie about one of the most iconic screen performers in history. A woman who is often underappreciated as a genuinely great actor when the material actually was her way. Making a very wonderful movie. It's a, it's a flighty romantic comedy, but it's very, very... Isn't the showgirl is very underrated. I it's it it's very, very sweet. Laurence Olivier is one of the greatest actors and filmmakers who ever lived. And it is from the perspective of random guy who had his life changed by getting to hang out with Marilyn Monroe, colon, the manic pixie dream girl. Fuck you. I remember when I interviewed Elaine Hendricks about The Parent Trap, go back to Lindsay Lohan, and she had talked about how she had pitched wanting to do a Carol Lombard biopic because she looked so much like Carol Lombard. And the studio told her, nobody knows who that is. This was after The Parent Trap. Nobody knows who Carol Lombard is. Nobody's going to see that movie. You broke my heart by saying those words, by the way. I know. I was shocked when she told me this, and I was like, are you serious? And that's the thing, is that men have this inherent name recognition, supposedly, when it comes to biopics. Mind you, we're talking about a movie where Elizabeth Taylor is probably better known than Richard Burton. But when it comes to movie making about old Hollywood, can we really say that millennials know who Howard Hughes is? Yet Scorsese still made The Aviator. Okay, maybe The Aviator is a bad example, but... No, no, it's apt. I can just think of a few exceptions where people would, but that's just right. That's me going around a certain cinephile crowd. Howard Hughes does not have name recognition on par with the big celebrities of the day. It's not Marilyn Monroe. It's interesting when they talk about biopics, like who gets made. Now we're veering more towards people that have that indelible name recognition. Your Elton Johns, your Freddie Mercury's, people that pretty much have to be living under a rock not to know who they are. When you're a musician, your music gets played so often, yeah. even even decades later in movies and commercials and things, that they feel alive. They don't feel as retro. There's something that we're all pretty intimately familiar with because you can just run into an Elton John song. It's actually pretty hard to accidentally start watching a Richard Burton film nowadays. I believe, if memory serves, we're going to have another Elizabeth Taylor movie out allegedly in the next year or two. It's called A Special Relationship. It's directed by the directing team of Bert and Bertie, who did Troop Zero this year. It's got Rachel Weiss as Elizabeth Taylor with a script by Simon Beaufoy, who did Slumdog Millionaire and The Full Monty, and it's going to document Elizabeth Taylor's later life as she becomes an AIDS activist. That sounds cool. I got to talk to Bert and Bertie very briefly about it last year. And they said that it's definitely going to be a cinematic version of her life, which I hope that implies some good stuff in terms of telling 
a big story about a big personality. The diamond budget on that movie is going to Oh, yeah. They said the diamond budget was definitely going to be huge. So <laughs> hopefully they get a better 80s Taylor wig on Rachel uh, than they did on Lindsay Lohan, who I love that we get two scenes at the end of her as 80s Taylor or 70s Taylor, whenever she had that big hair. The and big puffy turban that she, she yes, used. I commend Lindsay Lohan for having the world's best worst faint. <laughs> that, that is not a faint. That is, I dropped to my knees so that I didn't hit the floor. It's a Lifetime original movie. She was already had exhaustion and was in a car accident. I'm not fucking up my knees for this movie. <laughs> I'm not fucking up my knees for Liz and Dick, okay? Yes. You me a lot more. Or just frame down for fuck's sake. What were you even doing filming at that angle? If that's yeah. how she's going to fall, what are you doing? Just have her fall uh. on paper from a medium. <laughs> One thing I was watching this movie and I found myself really regretting is that I've actually seen a precious few of the films that Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, who, by the way, hated being called Dick, I've actually seen very few of the movies that they did together. So when they were talking about some of these films that they made, like the VIPs, I'm just taking it on faith that that looks okay. I have nothing to compare that to, which is weird because I'm usually pretty well schooled when it comes to these kind of biopics. That's just me admitting fault. That's something I don't know to talk about because I haven't seen that particular film or some of the others that they made. Yeah, they did 11 films together. If you have not seen them, I have not seen all of them, but Cleopatra is kind of the gold standard. They had actually done, I think, the VIPs relatively close together to this. So again, they went from like making this movie to immediately going into another movie together. They followed that up with Sandpiper, and then they did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is fantastic. If you want to just have some great fun watching four people yell at each other for two hours. Their adaptation of Zeffirelli's Taming of the Shrew, I can't stand. What's but wrong with it? What happened? It's mostly because it's Taming of the Shrew. I know a lot of people give 10 things flack for, oh, it forces people not to read Taming of the Shrew. Taming of the Shrew remains one of Shakespeare's most misogynistic plays. And you need that Hollywood touch to get over the fact that it's the story of a guy who's going to break a woman down, damn it. There's only two good adaptations of Taming of the Shrew. Eh, okay, three. Give me Kate's pretty good. Ten Things I Hate About You is pretty good. I don't like that at the end, when she's upset with him for incredibly valid reasons, all he does is buy her off with a new guitar. That pisses me off. Otherwise, the movie is damn near perfect. That and the Taming of the Shrew episode of Moonlighting which is very, very funny. I've never seen an episode of Moonlighting in my life. The early seasons are really good, then they got together, they're not great. I haven't seen every episode either. I was more of a Remington Steel guy. But there's an episode of Moonlighting where literally it's just Taming of the Shrew, but all of the actors on the show are in it. If memory serves, they don't even really explain why they're doing it. It's moonlighting, so it's very, very tongue-in-cheek. And so Petruchio comes to town, and, you know, he says, like, I've come to wive me merrily in Padua. Oh, no, kung fu warriors have, have arrived. I'll have to fight them because I'm young Bruce Willis. And he does that. And it's just ridiculous and fun, and it takes the piss out of, let's be honest here, a Shakespeare play with a lot of piss in it. The Zeffirelli, it's Zeffirelli, so you're getting probably the most accurate, faithful adaptation that you'll get. But it's a lot of Elizabeth Taylor in very low-cut gowns, with heaving bosoms, throwing plates. In all fairness, bosoms heaved a lot more back in the 60s. Oh, yes, yes. Beautiful film to look at if you're looking for another Zeffirelli and you like Romeo and Juliet. Just know it's really 
shrill. There's a lot of screaming on everybody. Everybody screams their lines at some point. Then they did an adaptation of Dr. Faustus. They followed that up with the comedians. And then they did Boom, which I have not seen Boom, but I have heard of its infamy from many a TCM fan. I think they screened it at the film festival as a midnight screening. It's supposedly legendary. Legendarily good? No, like so bad it's good. Yay! Yeah. I want to say Warner Archive just released it on DVD and Blu-ray. I really want to see it. And then they took a break. Richard Burton, I know, did Anne of the Thousand Days in 69, which is one of my favorite movies. Elizabeth Taylor wanted to play Anne Boleyn, and they told her no. And they got Jean-Vierre Bujol. But if you watch Anne of the Thousand Days at the right time and you pause, there is a scene where Elizabeth Taylor shows up. She bursts into the room and she puts a mask in front of her face. But it's Elizabeth Taylor. Um, oh, my God. You're kidding. It's great. It's great. Oh, my God. Liz, you <laughs> yeah. couldn't resist, could you? You can tell because heaving bosoms, camera's right on her face. It's her face. And then they did Under Milkwood in 72, Hammersmith is Out, which is actually not available on DVD or Blu-ray at all. And then their final film was a TV movie called Divorce His and Divorce Hers. There's some different things out there. I want to say the last two films are on very low-budget DVDs, not official issue. They are out. You want to look for all 11 Liz and Dick movies. Of course, both of them got married after Elizabeth Taylor got married a couple more times after Richard Burton. They, they, they got married twice and divorced twice. Can you imagine how cool it would be if Criterion put out a Liz and Dick box set? Oh my God. That'd be amazing. That would be future idea, Criterion. Ooh, we know you're listening, Criterion. <laughs> you know you're listening. You know, Elizabeth Taylor famously said that nobody was better than Richard Burton, that he was the love of her life for good and for ill. I don't know if you'd necessarily get that from this movie, but that is a true fact. Overall, this movie's not terrible. It's terribly made. It's ineptly made in many ways, but I can't really fault Grant Bowler and Lindsay Lohan for having to work with what they have. They try very hard. This is not Lindsay Lohan phoning it in. There are movies where I'd argue that she does, but this is not necessarily one of them. I do feel in certain scenes, though, she's a bit more committed. You can tell, like, how she's feeling on the day based on the scene. Here's what I'm going to say, final word about the performances in this movie. First off, everyone who gives a small supporting performance, they're giving just as much as they would in any major movie. They're fine. Grant Bowler is a perfectly decent Richard Burton. He's not amazing. He's the he'd best never, part of the movie. He'd never win an Oscar for it, but he's giving a very respectable performance, top to bottom, beginning to end. Got to give him a lot of credit. Lindsay Lohan, you're right. It's clear she's committed to this. It also seems clear to me that it's a combination of the role being underwritten and the perspective being off, and Lohan perhaps being a little out of her depth because she cannot elevate this material. Grant Bowler kind of elevates the material briefly here and there. Lindsay Lohan gets by. And that sucks because I think she's very, very talented. The industry has been shockingly unkind to her. And I would love, 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 love for her to have a proper comeback role. Maybe one that was written around her, tailored to her strengths, so that she can actually get on people's good side again and show that she always had it and she got screwed over because this ain't it. When your career comeback depends on the one-two punch 
of a lifetime original movie where the promotional budget was bigger than the budget for the film. And I almost called it The Hills, The Canyons. That's not a great career renaissance right there. Your agent has not done well for you. You need to be doing something else. If she's happy not doing high-profile things, she was on a TV series, she does some guest spots here and there, if she's happy doing that, great. And if she wants a career comeback, I fully support it, but she needs someone better than this. That's the thing, is I think that this movie suffers from being a Lifetime movie in the way that we said The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe suffered from being a Lifetime movie because it was too good for being a Lifetime movie. I feel like Liz and Dick suffers because it's almost complacent to be a Lifetime movie. It's just like, yeah, nobody's going to give this much thought, so we're just going to slap it together. Who cares? It's a Lifetime movie. If anything, in doing two episodes about Lifetime movies on this podcast, Lifetime really needs to decide what it wants to do with itself. Does it want to be a serious place for small budget fare like this that wouldn't do well in a theater? Or does it want to just be cheap, slapdash, hokum that people are going to hate watch and laugh at? I've seen a lot of Lifetime. It's the second. That's what they lean into. That's what they want. Occasionally, they'll do something that's better than you think. Occasionally, they'll uh, elevate our standards a little bit. You really wanted to cover Liz and Dick. I did. You really, really did. And so next time, the choice is mine. Yes. I'm going to call it right now. Oh, yeah. And, oh, you are not going to be happy with me. <laughs> oh, I'm about to ruin our lives. Because oh, I gosh. got a good one. I know what we're doing. <laughs> It's not going to be the haunting of Sharon Tate? It's not going to be the haunting of Sharon Tate. It's not going to be as uh, grotesque as the haunting of Sharon Tate. Should I tell you now what I'm going to make us do? Yes, why not? Okay, I'll give you a hint. I'm going to give you a cast, and I want to see if you can guess what movie this is. Okay. Okay, Tony Bennett, Ernest Borgnine, Peter Lawford, Milton Berle, Joseph Cotton, Bob Hope, Hedda Hopper as herself, Edith Head as herself, Ed Begley, Walter Brennan, Stephen Boyd, and Elkie Summer in a movie co-written by Harlan Ellison. We're doing the Oscar. Okay. All of those things sound good. They sound good? They're not! I love not. Peter Lawford. <laughs> They're not good! We're in a lot of trouble! Okay, so that's that's going to be next episode. Hopefully everybody's like, they're pumped. They're pumped for yeah. this. That's going to close out this episode of Based on a True Podcast. Of course, we thank you for supporting us via Patreon. You can always follow what's going on on the podcast on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. We have our new episodes coming out every other week as we go on our road to 100. Had some great special guests coming on more surprises for you. Uh, Bibbs, where can fans find your work? What's going on with all your other projects? Oh, I have so many other projects. Oh, it's so much. You can find the Critically Acclaimed Network, which is a whole pantheon of podcasts that I do with my regular co-host, Whitney Seibold. We have for free on iTunes and Podbean and Libsyn and all those other places. We have the podcast Critically Acclaimed, where we do new movie reviews. We've got mail, where we answer letters from our listeners. 
episode zero, where we review the prehistory of Star Wars and look at all of the films that influenced Star Wars, films like Akira Kurosawa's Dersu Uzala or The Wizard of Oz or experimental films like 2187. We've got Cancel Too Soon, where we review TV shows that lasted only one season or less. We also have the critically acclaimed Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have a ton of exclusive content there. If you're a fan of this particular Patreon, you might be particularly interested in shows we've got like Only the Best, where we're in the process of reviewing every film ever nominated for Best Picture, and Not on Disney+, Plus, where we talk about movies that should be on Disney+, Plus, but mysteriously are not, such as, and you've brought it up multiple times in this podcast, all of the Parent Trap sequels. Not the remake, the sequels. Parent Trap 2, starring Haley Mills and Haley Mills, and Tom Skerritt for some reason, and also Parent Trap 3 and 4, which co-stars Haley Mills and Haley Mills and Barry Bostwick. So we've got a lot of stuff like that. So if you want to look at old Hollywood stuff, we got more stuff there too. We will be back next time talking about another Based on True podcast film. Till then. Thank you.